0: let me have you pick up your Bibles and turn once again to Mark and to chapter 10 as we continue working our way through this wonderful record of the the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 35 through 45 this morning. Follow along as I read and as you listen, be reminded that this is God's... God breathed word to us this morning, so let's give good attention to it. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand or left left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared." For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray as we get ready to look into this passage. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for... Uh, the record of the life of christ that we are going through that we've read this morning and we we pray now that you would help us to give good attention to the preaching of your word we pray that you would bless your servant who preaches may he be clear of thought and of speech we pray that you would bless us who hear lord may we have ears to hear what you say to us through your word this morning lord and we pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Ambition is one of the ingredients, one of the driving forces of the American dream in our nation. If you want to achieve something and you have the ambition to do what is necessary to achieve it, the way is clear forward for you to achieve it. But ambition can be a two-edged sword. Ambition can make men do questionable things. In fact, it can make men do things that are not even questionable but that are just evil. How many... Murders, how many wars, how much destruction of others and of the lives of others have resulted from the blind, selfish ambition of men and women. And what about the church? What is the place of ambition in the church? Well, this morning we get a lesson on that from a couple of disciples and from Jesus himself and we're going to have to jump right into this this morning without further words of introduction so let's get right to it this morning in looking at our passage as we begin by looking at the request that comes forward in verses 33 or I'm sorry 35 through 45 we've read this, you heard it as we read it, but one of the most amazing things about this is maybe something that we we didn't read this morning, and that is that this discussion, this interaction that we're going to look at comes right on the heels of Jesus explaining to the disciples that he is about to lay down his life uh, in service of others. Uh, That their, their response to Jesus' announcement of his own death and suffering is for them to try to, at least a couple of them, to try to secure for themselves positions of authority, of the highest authority in Christ's kingdom, should strike us. And, and here we learn again that the apostles of Christ, those 12 that Jesus had chosen from out of the disciples that he had called, uh, those, those 12 are, are not, at this point at least, Are not these spiritual powerhouses, but are, as one author has described them, 12 ordinary men. Men with sinful hearts. Men without the depth of insight that we sometimes attribute to them. And we see that they are more like, as another author has said, a band of unschooled ruffians and a few old fishermen. Later, of course, they will be different after Pentecost, after the equipping of Christ has completed and after the equipping of the Holy Spirit comes upon them for for their, their service, their ministry as Christ's witnesses to the corners of the world. But for now, we see that they just continue, and Mark has shown this over and over, that they just don't get it yet. They're still learning. And so coming right off of Jesus solemnly revealing to them what awaits him in Jerusalem, we read that James and John, verse 35, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So here are James and John, Two of the inner circle of the apostles, right? It's interesting to hear that Peter is not involved in this. But James and John, and we actually do get a little added detail, an interesting bit of added detail from Matthew's record of this event as to someone else who is involved in this. In Matthew twenty twenty, Matthew writes that the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons. So Mrs. Zebedee is is part of this as well. But that's all we hear from that point forward in both Matthew and, of course, in Mark here, who doesn't mention her. Uh, This is James and John. And even for for her, it, it makes sense that she would want her sons to be taken care of, to have a position in the new administration that she and they thought that Jesus was going to usher in. Remember, they were thinking of a physical restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And so it it sort of makes sense. But Mark uh, just focuses here on, on James and John, who, he writes, came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Wow. I mean, they have chutzpah. We can give them that. It appears, though, that they have not learned the lessons that Christ has been teaching them all along. Jesus, again, has just said that he is going to be killed, and now they approach him with with this. And in a way that sounds more like a demand than a request doesn't it Uh, James and John were remember among the first disciples in fact they were along with Peter the first disciples that were formally called by Jesus and perhaps this led them along with mommy to to believe that they had the right to claim special status and so they ask very bluntly for a special favor from Jesus. And Jesus, of course, then asks what it is they want. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And then they drop the bomb in verse 37. They said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Oh, is that all? Now, the background here, remember, is is likely still the, the disciples' misunderstanding of Jesus' mission, their misunderstanding of the nature of the Messiah. They are thinking that he was still going to lead to a, like I said, a physical restoration of the nation and that he would rule it as an earthly king, as a descendant of the king of, of King David. And they want a piece of it. They want to be in positions of, of, of authority. They have an ambition to do that. They well we, with that understanding of of Jesus and of what he's come to do, they with that hope, they ask him to make him their their right and left hand men. The the right hand of the throne was the the second place in the kingdom, the place of authority, the place of power. The left hand would have been the next next place down. So they want the best places. They want to be um, right up there in Jesus' kingdom as it comes. They desire Uh, that place. The idea here of them wanting these positions in your glory, the text says, means when you come to rule, they desire a place of glory through appointment. And of course, if Jesus was to extend this, that would exclude the other disciples from such a high position. And so they come and ask, Not any concern for the other ten, but for themselves. We want these places. We want you to do this for us. Now, before we skewer James and John too much for this, brothers and sisters, let's always remember to look in the mirror. Let each of us this morning ask ourselves if our own conversations with God, our prayers... If they don't look like, if they don't resemble sometimes James and John saying, I want you to do for me whatever I ask, how often do we treat God as if he were our own personal bellboy, our own personal uh, waiter, or genie in the bottle? More water, please, and, and could you bring some extra dressing for my salad? Just come... And, and do this for me. Oh, yes. And, and make me second in command of your kingdom. You know, do this for me. Do that for me. Is that, beloved, how our prayers should be? You've all heard of the, the acronym to help with prayer, the ACTS acronym that stands, for, says that, that every prayer should have adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication. A-C-T-S. But how often, I think, do we try to make that stand for ask continually for tons of stuff? We bring our list. Um, Look at the Lord's Prayer. Does it look like that? Jesus gave us that prayer as a model, and it starts and it ends with God and with recognizing Him and praying that He would be glorified, that His will would be done, not ours. That his kingdom would be expanded. And then that he would meet our needs, our needs for today, our daily needs. Recognizing that we are going to have to come back tomorrow and ask the same thing, to keep in our minds that God is the one who gives us everything. But very often our prayers are just a list of things. At least James and John's list only has one thing on it. It's a big one, but it's just one. James and John want places of the highest rank in the kingdom just below Christ himself. And so how does Jesus answer? That's the reply. And before he answers their request directly, he sort of takes them through something. He he grills them about what they're really asking and teaches them something about the nature of his kingdom. First, he sets the stage for his response by stating, well, pretty bluntly, that they obviously didn't get uh, what they were asking. He says it, you do not know what you're asking, and they didn't, not by a long shot. And in order to help them in answering that question, he asked them then a second question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Two metaphors there that Jesus uses. By the way, two metaphors which are very familiar to us today but would have been much less so to James and John here before Jesus' passion had come to pass. And they are are both ways, as Jesus uses them here, to refer to things that Jesus was to undertake, that Jesus was to experience. The redemptive overtones, the vicarious overtones of these two images, though, have not yet been really established. But the idea of drinking of a cup as a picture of an experience That part they they get. That goes back into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the idea of drinking from a cup usually pictures, usually prefigures prefigures a judgment uh, that was to come upon a nation. For example, Isaiah 25 says, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So there's a picture of judgment there, but it establishes this idea of of an experience coming through and being described as drinking from a cup. The picture of baptism is similar. We've heard of a baptism of fire, which actually comes from Matthew 3. Uh, But we hear it referring to an experience of, of the most extreme kind, a severe ordeal. Well, Jesus is speaking in that way as well here. He is asking them, are you able to join me in what I am going to face? Are you able to endure the kind of things that I am able to endure? Now it's interesting, as Jesus asked that and as we have more, a more full understanding on this side of the cross, we understand that there is something more that he's saying in this statement than what they are going to understand. Uh, the things that he's talking about will teach them in a different way than we we might understand it. The things that he's talking about would have been very fresh in their minds, the idea of Jesus saying, I am going to drink of a cup, I'm going to be baptized with a baptism. The reference there had to have been very fresh in their minds as Jesus just told them for the third time and in unequaled detail here of what was going to happen to them. He said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit him, spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Jesus asks, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Another reminder here for us this morning of what we talked about a little bit last week and what theologians, starting with Martin Luther, referred to as the theology of the cross, the fact that we must understand the work of Christ and the accomplishment of of Christ, the accomplishments of Christ, and the broader working of God in line, not with what we might think or what we might expect, but with the way that God has revealed it in His Word. The fact that we must understand that, that way. There is no glory, remember, we talked about, for Christ without the cross, And, in fact, the cross of Christ was his greatest victory. Which makes no sense in the way the world thinks about things. But in allowing his heel to be bruised, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. And in demonstrating most spectacularly what they, the disciples, have not yet grasped, Uh, He lays this out for them. And in demonstrating that they have not grasped it, they give the answer that they give in verse 39. We are able. Now that sounds arrogant. But again, we can be thinking of... Jesus' cup that he was to drink, the baptism with which he was to be baptized, as the things that we know, his atonement, his work on the cross and what it really means. To them, though, they did not yet understand that. And so we have to cut James and John a bit of a break here. They did not and could not have known all that we know today from the teachings of of Peter and Paul and the other writers of the New Testament that the cup that Jesus drank in his suffering and death included not just physical suffering, not primarily physical suffering, not just suffering the wrath of men, though that indeed was great. Death by crucifixion was specifically tailored to be not only a shameful experience, but an excruciatingly slow and painful death. In fact, we get the word excruciating from the word for for cross. But it's not just that. He suffered not just the wrath of men, but the white, hot, unimaginable, holy, righteous, and altogether just wrath of God against sin. All of the sin of all of the elect through all time and all places was upon him. All concentrated on the divine human person of Jesus Christ as he died in the place of those sinners. That is the true nature of the cup that Jesus drank, the baptism that he underwent. It is the cup that was so horrific and so repugnant that he himself asked to have it removed from him if it be possible in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 39. Though he chose, of course, to conclude that prayer by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. Because you see, Jesus didn't die the death of a a martyr, but of a substitute. The death of a perfect, spotless, flawless, flawless, Acceptable sacrifice for sin in the place of men. A lamb without blemish, crucified, his blood shed, that the wrath of God would pass over those for whom it was shed. James and John couldn't be expected to have known the depth of that truth on their side of the cross before those events took place. And indeed, they did not. Because whereas Jesus would drink that cup of sufferings to the bitter dregs, the disciples would just sip it. And whereas Jesus' baptism with suffering was a full immersion, the disciples would be a sprinkling. And theirs would not be atoning. Theirs would not be a substitute but they would suffer and so Jesus then in response to their obviously uninformed answer in verse 39 when they said we are able he says this he says the cup that I drink you will drink and the bat, with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized again the cup and the baptism that Jesus is speaking of here that they will partake of is not any way atoning in their result but he is using them now simply as an image for suffering an image for suffering to which they were themselves destined a cup that jesus says they would drink and they will james in fact will drink it first In Acts chapter 12, in the record of the early church, Luke tells us that Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And specifically it says he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He drank of that cup of suffering. His brother John, tradition tells us, formed a kind of bookmark in the death of the apostles, becoming the last of the apostles to die, after being exiled to that small island of Patmos where he received and recorded the content of the book of Revelation. And whether he died on that island, as some tradition says, or whether, as another tradition says, he lived for a long time and died of old age in the city of Ephesus, we don't know. But they both suffered as Jesus' disciples. They both suffered the hatred of the world, as did the rest of the disciples, as do Jesus' disciples today. Jesus said, the world hates me, and so don't be surprised that the world hates you. And so having said this, then Jesus gives them now a direct answer to their question. It's there in verse 40. He says, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. A very intriguing statement. From it, we don't learn a lot, but we learn a couple of things. We we learn that God's plan, of course, or we are reminded that God's plan is not piecemeal kind of plan-as-you-go type of plan, but it's all encompassing from the foundation of the world. It implies uh, that That honor is prepared for someone. But we're not told who. Just a couple of comments on that. First, based on what Jesus said back in uh, chapter 10 and verse 31, where he said that many who are first will be last and the last first, we might be surprised at who ends up with that honor, for whom the Lord has prepared that honor. But secondly... And I think more importantly for us sitting here this morning, if we look in places like 2 Timothy 2.12, there is a very real sense in which we all do now and will in eternity share in the reign of Christ. That verse in 2 Timothy 2.12 in part says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. And if you want to look up some other passages on that, that idea, that topic, Revelation 3.21, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3, Luke 22.30, uh, remind us of all the same things. So in that sense, we all have this privilege that James and John have come to ask for. We all co-reign with Christ. Not because we've asked for it, not because our moms came and helped us ask for it, not because we deserve it, but because we are united to Christ, our head, and as he reigns, we reign with him. Again, by God's grace. And in thinking on on these things, let us always be careful that we do not buy into this Theology of glory, the other side of the theology of the cross. The theology of glory that's reflected in so much of the church today, though it's not found on the pages of the New Testament, that that somehow the Christian life and and godliness is, as Paul says, a means of gain. Or that Christianity is a road paved with glory and all manner of profit and happiness. Let us always remember, beloved, that the Symbol of Christianity is not a throne but a cross oh yes the throne awaits the crowns await the full reigning of Christ or with Christ uh, is in our future and the streets of gold is an image of the new heavens and the new earth but that's not here and it's not now The path to heaven leads through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus said it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. We need not, we cannot, we may not, we must not expect the Christian life to be a walk in the park. It is a walk of trials. It is a walk of suffering, just as it was for our Lord. Well, in our third heading here, Mark goes on to tell us that Jesus wasn't the only one privy to this back and forth that went on between them, but that the other ten apostles heard this as well, and that they were none too happy about what they heard James and John attempting to secure. Look in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And it's most likely that the reason is not because they realized how inappropriate James and John were being, how how bold, how ambitious they were being in going to Jesus and asking that. That's not why they were indignant, but rather because they got there first. And the other disciples feel that that they may be missing out, that James and John are coming to Jesus to seek and to secure an advantage over them. Because what we have here really is a continuation of the ongoing argument among the disciples. And you remember what that argument is. We've seen it before in in chapter 9 in verse 34. The ongoing argument among the disciples is always over which one of them would be the greatest. The ambition to position and prominence is shared by all of them. But Jesus is, again, going to teach them. Try to get them to understand that the place of ambition in the church is that there is no place for ambition in the church. And so he gathers them together, once again, as he's done before, and he says to them in verse 42, he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, He says, that's how it works outside of my kingdom. That's how it works outside of the church, by the Gentiles, especially in their context, the Romans. Uh, But this is true, really, for all in the secular realm who hold power, especially high levels of power, absolute power. What they do, Jesus says, actually says two things. First, he says that they lord it over them. That is, they rule over their underlings with a heavy hand and exercise a, a clear and decisive um, dominion over them, sort of with their thumb on them. And he goes on and says, that, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It's interesting, that word that's translated exercise authority is a word that's only used here and in Matthew's uh, parallel to this. Uh, it's an even stronger word. It's a word that means to tyrannize, and it amplifies that first word. They lord it over, and in fact, they tyrannize those whom they rule over. A flaunting of authority, he says. That's the way it is in the world, in a a dictatorial way, a heavy-handed way, an ambitious way. That's the way that the rulers of the Gentiles do their ruling. That's the world. But here comes the lesson that Jesus is wanting to drive home to them and to us. He goes on and he says, But it shall not be so among you. As the British would say, that is right out. That is not the way the kingdom of God is administered, and led, and ruled. He's saying, you guys and your arguments about who is greatest, so misses the mark. So misses what is important. You've got it upside down. And that's because the kingdom of God, in that sense, is upside down. It so misses the mark and the intent and the means of true greatness in my kingdom. He says, don't you remember what I just told you? And we have it in chapter 10 in verse 31 that many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, it's upside down. That, this is the organizational chart for the kingdom of God. This is the book called How to Be Someone in the Kingdom of God. It looks like this, verse 43. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Again, Jesus uses two words in parallel here. The second amplifies the first. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Diakonos is the word. We get the word deacon from that. To be great, you must be the deacon among you. You must be the one who serves to meet the needs of others, the one who assists, the one, the helper of others. And if that is not distasteful enough to them and to many in the church today, Jesus says not only that, but he says whoever would be first among you, whoever would have that place of greatness in my kingdom, Jesus says, must be a slave of all. That word is doulos, and that's the word that is so often in the New Testament translated servant, but actually means slave, one who is committed to, one who is owned by, one who serves at the will of another. See, here's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God the non-intuitive and unexpected and contrary to the world and repugnant to the world, by the way, nature of the kingdom of Christ. Here is the outworking of the theology of the cross. To be great in the kingdom of God, we do not seek our own advantage or look for an opportunity to step over or to step on the backs of others in our ambition for advancement. We do not go to Christ and say, promise us the highest place, but we recognize, beloved, that greatness in God's kingdom comes through humble service to others. How would someone coming into our church identify the greatest in our church? Well, it would be by noticing the one who serves others humbly for the good of others, for the glory of God. It would be those who don't look for the limelight and have ambitions to the limelight, but the one who looks for what needs there are and seeks to meet them. Not those either who are trying to game the system and appear all servanty, but those who genuinely seek to serve whether or not they are recognized for their service. Knowing that we all have a master who is in heaven, who sees, and he will reward. Now, we should recognize them for their service, but the ones who are great in the kingdom of God will not seek it. Some forms of service in the church are visible, others are not. The visible forms aren't greater and those who serve in the visible forms are not greater in the kingdom because they serve in those visible ministries. Remember the word ministry. As you look for a place to minister in the church, remember that the word ministry means service. And the attitude of service in the church by Christians is is not just, that's not just equivalent to saying be in submission to the authorities that God has placed over you in the church. That's true, that's important. But Jesus' words here mean that we are to submit to everyone in the Lord. You are, the elders are, the pastor is, we all are. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.21 that we are to mutually serve one another. That's what we do. That's what we're called to do. That is the means of greatness in God's kingdom. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Jesus says, let me give you an example. The example of the king himself. And that's our last point this morning. And that this is true and foundational, what Jesus has been saying, true and foundational in Christ's church, is seen in this, Jesus says in verse 45, that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man. This principle goes all the way to the top. Even Christ, to whom belongs all the glory. To whom belongs all authority. Even Christ, who is the king and the indisputed or undisputed head of the church. To whom we all owe absolute, unquestioned obedience, obeisance, and loyalty. Even he came to this earth in his first coming as a servant. He took the form of a servant, Paul said, and humbled himself. The king himself became least of all for all. Second Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his pro- poverty you might become rich. An old hymn that says, I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me, how he left his home in glory for the cross of Calvary. An act of incomprehensible humility undertaken by the King of the universe, in that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. For many, he looked to the needs of others, the needs of you, the needs of me. And he placed those needs above his own concerns. He came, it says, to serve and to give. That's what he's saying. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom, to buy you back. Believer, to buy you, to purchase you. And if this was Jesus' attitude, how much should it be ours? It is enough for a servant, Jesus said, to be like his master. There is no place for selfish ambition in the church. But beloved, let us serve one another. And in doing so, serve the one who gave all so that we could be called God's children and to that let us say amen our father we pray that you would make us servants we pray that you would help us to have this this mind in us that was in Christ Jesus who came and humbled himself who took the form of a servant and humbled himself even to the point of death even death on a cross for the good Of us let us have that mind let us have a mind of service let us understand that greatness in the kingdom of God is found among the least is found among those who serve let that be us Lord let that be our aspiration to be the least knowing that in Christ's kingdom that's the best And we pray these things all in Jesus' name, amen.